I'm Bryce Miller, and this is Talking Atlas. Welcome back to Talking Atlas, everyone. We're coming to you this week with a slightly odd spoiler season. Uh, For one, Jacob is not here. He is down at the Music and Games Festival, better known as MAGFest, so hope he's having a good time there. It's also weird because this is the last small set ever, I guess. For most of Magic's history, there have been blocks, series of sets with the same setting usually, and generally, they've started off with a large set and then had some number of small sets. Usually it would be big, small, small. Then we got to the two-set paradigm, where we had two sets in every block, and it was largely large, small. Now we're doing away with blocks entirely, because it turns out that small sets are really hard to design and don't usually end up being as interesting as their large set counterparts. But here we are, with the last small set. Another change to this set that may be a result of it being the last small set is that we have the entire thing spoiled in a single week, which really just makes my job easier right now, because we will probably need two episodes to talk about everything, but I can organize whatever I want to talk about now, and when I run out of time, Jacob and I can pick up from where we left off in a week or so. Without further ado, the set. When we last left our heroes, and by heroes I mean the various factions vying for control of the City of Gold Oraska, which is totally not Dorado, guys, they had just come upon the city and were all converging and beginning to fight. From what I can tell of the set, Rivals of Ixalan mostly has them fighting over Araska and the Immortal Sun contained within. The card itself, the Immortal Sun, was leaked a little bit early, though now we have it in English, which is nice because English is my first language. The Immortal Sun is six mana for a legendary artifact. It has four pretty cool abilities. First, players can't activate Planeswalker's loyalty abilities. Okay, speaking as someone who plays Super Friends, I'm less fond of that one. The rest, though, at the beginning of your draw step, Draw an additional card. Then, spells you cast cost one less to cast. And finally, creatures you control get plus one, plus one. Some of us may be accustomed to playing Staff of Nin in Artifact or Red or White or Red-White Commander decks. Staff of Nin is a six-mana artifact that says you draw an additional card at your upkeep, and it also can tap to deal one damage to a creature or player. I'm guessing the Immortal Sun ought to replace Staff of Nain in probably 90% of decks that use it. There are a few that can make fun use of it, like Sidri. Sidri can give an artifact death touch, so it's specifically good in that deck, but overall this is going to be way better as card draw and ramp, and then still some. Unless you happen to play Staff of Nain in your Super Friends deck, in which case, don't swap to the Immortal Sun. Also, find a better draw spell than Staff of Nain, unless you're in... I don't know, mono-red super friends, which I guess is possible now that you can have duplicates of planeswalkers with the same subtype. Anyway, as we are wont to do, and by we I mean me, I'm going to run through a couple of the legends in this set. There are nine in total, a cycle of monocolored elder dinosaurs, followed by some multicolored ones. Ones being legendary creatures, not dinosaurs. Only one elder dinosaur is multicolored. Starting off with the white elder dino, Zatalpa, Primal Dawn. Six white white for a 4-8 legendary creature elder dinosaur. It has flying, double strike, vigilance, trample, and indestructible. Flavor text, the sky takes flight and the earth trembles. 
This is an extraordinarily rare example of a white card getting trample. I think, don't quote me on this, but I think that trample is one of those keywords that any color can have access to if it's really justifiable. And when you have a massive pterodactyl swinging in for eight thanks to its double strike, you probably don't want it getting chump blocked by a 1-1 bird. As much of an amazing image as that is. Woof, 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 the blue elder dino, Nazahal, Primal Tide, 5 blue blue for a 7-7. Seven, seven. It can't be countered. You have no maximum hand size. Whenever an opponent casts a non-creature spell, draw a card. Discard 3 cards, exile Nazahal, return it to the battlefield tapped under its owner's control at the beginning of the next end step. Every now and again we come across a blue sea monster control finisher almost. The mana cost might be a little steep for a standard control deck. A recent-ish example that comes to mind is Pearl Lake Ancient from Cons of Tarkir. It's 5 blue blue for a creature Leviathan. It has flash, it can't be countered, it has prowess, so when you cast a non-creature spell it gets plus 1 plus 1 until end of turn, and you can return 3 lands you control to their owner's hand to return it to its owner's hand. A creature as a control finisher has to have certain qualities to it. Most of all, you want to avoid losing it. Can't be countered means that you won't lose it if you're in a control mirror match of some kind, or against someone who happens to be playing counter spells. And some kind of return it to your hand, or flicker it, is another method of protecting it. Notably, this is not an instant flicker. It doesn't go away and come back immediately. It comes back at the end of turn. So, if you happen to board wipe or something, you could cast the board wipe, discard three cards from your hand, and then flicker in a Zahal. Moving on to black, Tetsamok, Primal Death. Four black black for a 6-6 six, six with a death touch. Black, reveal it from your hand. Put a prey counter on target creature. Activate this ability only during your turn. When Tetsamok enters the battlefield, destroy each creature your opponents control with a prey counter on it. The effect is pretty cool. I love how the art plays into the effect. I think that Tetsamok is supposed to be something like an Ankylosaurus. Ankylosaurus? Maybe Ankylosaurus. And he's absolutely covered in spikes. There are also spikes shooting up from the ground, so presumably the prey counters are marking, well, obviously, you're gonna die, you're gonna die, and when you cast Tetsamok and he enters, all the spikes shoot up from the ground and impale the people that you targeted. Moving into red, Itali, Primal Storm. Four red red for a 6-6. Six, six. Whenever Itali Primal Storm attacks, exile the top card of each player's library. Then you may cast any number of non-land cards exile this way without paying their mana costs. We started to see this card advantage by way of theft periodically. There's Grenzo Havoc Razor from Conspiracy Take the Crown. He's red red for a 2-2. Whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a player, choose one. Either go target creature that player controls, or exile the top card of that player's library. Until end of turn, you may cast that card and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast it. I positively love this effect. One of the biggest issues in Red Commander is that you can't really get card advantage. You can do it with sideways methods, using Red's discard then draw. If you have a thing that has madness or flashback, then at least you get some kind of value if you discard that red card. But this card advantage is very direct. I am stealing something from you, and this one I can even cast it for free. It's not mechanically in any color yet, really. The closest thing that it's in is blue, but blue can already do a lot of things. And blue is really good at getting regular old card advantage. So 
I think this makes a lot of sense to diversify into red. I can't say for sure if we'll see more of these effects in red, but having at least two cool rare examples of it, I could see it happening. The real measure will be if we can get any common or uncommon that relates to casting other people's cards. We've started to see impulse draw, quote-unquote, pretty frequently, which is usually of the form you exile the top card or some number of cards from your library until end of turn you may play them. So you can play lands, you can cast the spells. It's impulse draw, quote-unquote, firstly because of the card act on impulse being a key example, but also it's impulsive, like red is. It says, I need card advantage. On and get it now. And then if you don't use it, well, then it's gone. That's perfectly in line with Red's color pie. But maybe we can spread it out a bit by making it also apply to your opponent's things. And then in green, Galta, Primal Hunger. 10, green, green for a 12-12. Galta Primal Hunger costs X less to cast, where X is the total power of creatures you control. Also trample. With the obvious exception of Tetsumok, I could see all of these monocolored dinosaurs as their own commanders. Now, Zatalpa, Atali, and Galta are shoo-ins for the Gishoth deck, naturally. Gishoth lets you play dinosaurs for free. And these are some really, really scary dinosaurs to cheat into play. You lose nothing by cheating them into play. Zatalpa could probably show up in the 99 of Odric Lunark Marshall. Odric Lunark Marshall, TLDR, shares your keywords every combat. So every combat, if you have Zatalpa out, your creatures will get Flying, and Double Strike, and Vigilance, and Trample, and Indestructible. Tetsamok being a card that you need to use from your hand doesn't make very much sense in Commander, and its effect isn't really good enough to me to justify the hoops you would jump through to be able to use it in Commander, but not every legend is designed specifically for Commander. Nizahal, I'm not sure if I would play in any decks, but if I wanted a big, angry Plesiosaur as my Commander, it does get you card advantage. It's top-heavy, but you can protect it pretty well with its own effects, to say nothing of counterspells. So I would expect to see a couple of Galta, Atali, and Zatalpa decks, probably Atali the most because it's a very unique effect, a handful of Nazahal, and almost no Tetsamok decks. Moving on now to the multicolored legends. Surprisingly, there is no pirate legend in this set, despite there being a new black-white vampire, a new blue-green merfolk, a new... Naya Dinosaur. There's another Elder Dinosaur. I'll get to that in a little bit. The other multicolored creature in this set is Azor, the Lawbringer. You might be saying to yourself, Azor, that name is familiar. It should be, because he is the Paran, the founder of the Azorius Guild on Ravnica. This says a couple of things. One, Azor was a planeswalker. We didn't know that before. Two, Azor was a planeswalker. Emphasis on the was. This is a legendary creature, not a planeswalker. Three, he's apparently a Sphinx. I guess we didn't know for sure that he's not a Sphinx. I guess we assumed that he was a human because we humans assume that most things are humans. As for his mechanics, he's two white, white, blue, blue for a 6-6 legendary creature Sphinx. He has flying. When he enters the battlefield, each opponent can't cast instant or sorcery spells during that player's next turn. Notably, they can cast instants on someone else's turn. Whenever Azor attacks, you may pay X white, blue, blue. If you do, you gain X life and draw X cards. This is point for point the card Sphinx's Revelation, Scourge of Return to Ravnica standard. It's a really good spell. It being repeatable on a kind of expensive Sphinx seems neat if difficult to manage. The flavor implications here are incredible. 
we have every reason to believe that it was Azor who created the Immortal Sun. The Immortal Sun being the artifact that prevents planeswalkers from leaving Ixalan. Maybe he came here and made Ixalan some kind of planeswalker prison. We don't know yet. We haven't seen any of the story that relates to him, or really any of the story for Rivals of Ixalan at all. Since he doesn't have his spark anymore, popular money is he either sacrificed it to create or put it into the Immortal Sun. Next up, the vampire legend, Alenda the Dusk Rose. Two white black for a 1-1 legendary creature, Vampire Knight, with lifelink. Whenever another creature dies, put a plus one plus one counter on Alenda the Dusk Rose. When Alenda dies, create X 1-1 white vampire creature tokens with lifelink, where X is Alenda's power. Especially with the release of Commander 2017, vampires have a lot of options for playing them in Commander now. Cards from original Innistrad, Return to Innistrad, this set, the Commander set. This one trends more towards aristocrats, so maybe you sacrifice creatures for value. Also, what's nice is that this really doesn't need to be a vampire deck. Alenda would be an absolutely fine payoff for, I legitimately want to play aristocrats in commander. You'll have a big creature until she dies, and then you'll have a ton of tokens that gain you life. The main downside is, she has to actually die. Keep in mind that when you're playing commander, your commander going to the command zone is a replacement effect. If your commander would die, or would go to exile, or would go to your hand, or would go to your library, you may instead put it into the command zone. So if you're playing her as your commander, you're going to need more than the average amount of reanimation, unless she's a utility piece in an otherwise fairly redundantly constructed deck. Next, for the merfolk, Kumena, Tyrant of Orazka. One green-blue for a legendary creature, merfolk shaman. He's a 2-4. Tap another untapped merfolk you control. Kumena can't be blocked this turn. Tap three untapped merfolk you control. Draw a card. Tap five untapped merfolk you control. Put a plus one plus one counter on each merfolk you control. I am a little bit disappointed that Kumena is not a merfolk wizard, if only because in Lorwyn block, there was a lot of play with tribal. There was merfolk tribal. There were also tribal themes that related to classes rather than species. Magic doesn't make distinctions between creature types. Shaman and human are both creature types. You might find a human shaman and an elf shaman and a goblin shaman, while you obviously will not find many goblin elves, but mechanically there's really no distinction between class creature types and species creature types. Eventually Lorwyn had interplay between the class themes and the species themes, Merfolk were connected to wizards. If Kumena were a wizard, he would play so much better with those cards. As it stands, there are a couple of merfolk that care about being tapped or untapping, so having a tap outlet as your commander makes them immediately pay off. And it's just a nice, simple design. A lot of the blue-green legends we've seen recently are big, big value. In the last set, we had Tishana. She draws you a card when she enters the battlefield for each creature you control. In Kaladesh, we had Rashmi, who gets you free spells every turn, or at least draws you a card. Not every blue-green commander needs to give me tons of stuff. They can do interesting things like this. And hey, I still do get card advantage if I need it. The final legendary creature is one more Elder Dinosaur. Zakama, Primal Calamity. Six red-green-white for a 9-9 with Vigilance, Reach, and Trample. When Zakama Primal Calamity enters the battlefield, if you cast it, untap all lands you control. There are three activated abilities. Tuna Red, 
Zakama deals 3 damage to target creature. 2 in a green, destroy target artifact or enchantment. 2 in a white, you gain 3 life. The design of this card is stellar. It's a 3-headed dinosaur. It's a 9-9 for 9, 3 from each, 3 keywords, 3 activated abilities. I love that. It's also a wonderful acknowledgement of what Commander is like. If I'm playing this big dumb creature as my Commander, so often I'll play it, it will enter the battlefield, and before I get a chance to do anything with it, it's going to eat a Doomblade. The fact that when this enters, it untaps your lands, at least means that if your opponent has Sorcery Speed Removal, you can activate its abilities. Moving on now to the Planeswalkers. There are two of them. The first that we kind of expected is Angrath, the Flame Chained. Angrath is a Minotaur Pirate who wields Molten Chains to fight his enemies. He's awesome. Also, all he wants to do is get home to his daughters, but he can't because of Ixalan's Binding, and that's really upsetting. He's three black-red for a legendary Planeswalker, Angrath. Enters with four loyalty counters. Plus one. Each opponent discards a card and loses two life. Minus three. Gain control of target creature until end of turn. Untap it. It gains haste until end of turn. Sacrifice it at the beginning of the next end step, if it has converted mana cost to three or less. This seems like a great top-down way to characterize his chains. I grab you, I pull you to you, I force you to work for me, and if you're squishy, you're not going to survive the ordeal. Then, minus 8, each opponent loses life equal to the number of cards in their graveyard. Altogether, seems like a fine Planeswalker. I don't know that I would put it into Super Friends decks. It's okay. I would usually rather myself get card advantage than try to deny my opponent's card advantage. I could maybe see it as an upper end of a weird control deck, but I wouldn't hold my breath either. Now, I was really holding out that the other Planeswalker would be Azor, but we now know that he probably gave up a spark. The other Planeswalker card in this set is Hwatli again, Radiant Champion. She seems to have been chosen by Oraska or Zakama or all of the above in some form. Two green-white for a legendary Planeswalker, Hwatli. Enters with three counters, plus one. Put a loyalty counter on Hwatli, Radiant Champion, for each creature you control. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is only the second time we've had a Planeswalker who plays with the number of loyalty counters they have using an ability. The other being Gideon, Champion of Justice. You plus one him to put a loyalty counter on him for each creature target opponent controls. Hwatli's minus one is target creature gets plus x plus x until end of turn, where x is the number of creatures you control. There's a theme here. Minus eight. You get an emblem with, whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, you may draw a card. I find this to be a cool design for a planeswalker. If you bring your own creatures, you have a lot of interactions with her. But if you're not playing a creature-heavy deck, she's not going to do anything for you. It also seems obscenely easy to get her to ult. If you have four creatures out, the turn she comes down, you plus one, she goes to eight, you can ult her next turn. That's pretty cool. Furthermore, she's going to be really hard to kill. If you have six creatures, ignoring the fact that you have six blockers, you also have a Planeswalker that came in and has ten loyalty now. We have an awesome cycle of legendary enchantments, but before I get to that, let's touch on the story spotlight cards. There are only three in this set, which makes sense because I don't think there's a lot that can happen from Arrive at Oraska, Fight over Oraska and Immortal Sun, and whatever comes after. The first one is Flood of Recollection, blue-blue, for a sorcery. Return target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard to your hand, then exile Flood of Recollection. Flavor text, Jace tumbled down the waterfall and plunged deep into his past. 
to no one's particular surprise, Jace is overcoming his amnesia. Actually, some people may have been surprised because they really wanted a Jace character reset. I hope he's learned from his amnesia time. It's abundantly clear from this art that deep into his past means Jace is recalling Vryn as well, his home plane. There's a clear set of mage rings floating ethereally in blue in front of him. Because what do we know about Vryn, everyone? Mage rings! What else do we know about Vryn? Diddly squat! Next is Induced Amnesia. Tuna blue for an enchantment. When it enters the battlefield, target player exiles all cards from their hand face down, then draws that many cards. When Induced Amnesia is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, return the exiled cards to their owner's hand. The art depicts a really quite sad-looking Jace casting a memory spell on Vraska. The nice thing is, the design of this card implies that Vraska could get her memory back. I'm curious to see exactly why this happened. It could have been that Jace didn't want Vraska to remember the Immortal Sun. It could have been that it would be a danger to Azor. It could have been that by forgetting things about Nicol Bolas, she wouldn't be too much at his mercy. I'm not sure yet, but I think this means the Jace Vraska ship has sailed. And that's got layers. And finally, Mastermind's Acquisition. Two black-black for a sorcery. Choose one, search your library for a card, put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. Or, choose a card you own from outside the game and put it into your hand. So for the same cost as Diabolic Tutor, it's either a Diabolic Tutor or a Wish. Wishes have a pretty long history in Magic. They're a lot of fun, they're very weird. In tournament settings, a Wish gets you a card from your sideboard. So every now and again you might see a Modern or Legacy deck with a quote-unquote Wishboard where a big chunk of their sideboard is answers to things they commonly encounter, but they can grab it during a game. They don't need to wait until they get to round two and have sideboarded. The flavor text of this card is another piece of a nefarious puzzle. There's some figure to the right, I can't quite make out who. They're casting a spell that I imagine is a teleportation spell to steal the immortal sun. Especially with Dominaria as our next set, we are leading up to quite the set piece moment. Nicol Bolas has planar portals capable of transporting, quote, gearhulk-sized things across the planes. He has an army of undead that can presumably pass through planar portals, because the planar portals can't take living things, but zombies aren't living. He may also have mummified gods to walk through the portals, and that would help explain why he specified it had to let through gearhulk-sized things. It's worth noting that the original portal was destroyed, but seeing as Tezzeret escaped with the technology, they probably made their own big portals. Then, with the Immortal Sun, Nickel Boss could trap planeswalkers. Whether that's because he wants to jail them, or use their sparks for something, or just start slaughtering them on Dominaria, I don't know. Also, I don't know for sure that he'll be on Dominaria, but... Since it's Magic's 25th anniversary, and we're going to Magic's home plane, it makes sense as a pseudo-culmination of this arc. Plus, I relish every opportunity to see the conclusion of Nicol Boss's scheming. Now, getting back to those enchantments I mentioned. I absolutely love the transform mechanic in original Ixalan. That makes it sound very old. In Ixalan from a few months ago. It's back here. Many of the transform cards are artifacts. These five are enchantments. They are all enemy-colored. So there's a white-black, blue-red, black-green, red-white, and blue-green enchantment. The white-black is Profane Procession. 
That's satisfying to say. One white black for a legendary enchantment. Three white black, exile target creature. Then if there are three or more cards exile with profane procession, transform it. Tap, add one mana of any color to your mana pool. Two white black tap, put a creature card exiled with this permanent onto the battlefield under your control. The fun thing about all these transform cards is they are for the first time ever a land with a converted mana cost. Well, specifically, a land with a cost other than playing it, which means we get into some wacky, wacky design space with lands. The blue-red version was leaked early. It's called Storm the Vault. Whenever one or more creatures you control deal combat damage to a player, create a colorless treasure artifact token with tap, sack this artifact, add one mana of any color to your mana pool. At the beginning of your end step, if you control five or more artifacts, transform Storm the Vault. And it turns into Vault of Katlakan. It taps for one mana of any color, or tap add blue to your mana pool for each artifact you control. It's the Talarian Academy, but it's legal in Commander, and still really easy to flip. Can I just play this as the commander of my blue-red artifacts deck? That'd be so good. I wouldn't actually do that, because that would be a gross abuse of commander rules. Oh, but it'd be so good. The green-black enchantment is Journey to Eternity. One black-green. This one's an aura. Enchant creature you control. When enchanted creature dies, return it to the battlefield under your control, then return Journey to Eternity to the battlefield transformed under your control. It becomes Atzal, Cave of Eternity. Taps for one mana of any color. Three black, green, tap. Return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. Very cute little design. If you have a green-black deck that cares about creatures dying, the front end and the back end are both really useful. Next up, Path of Metal. That's M-E-T-T-L-E, not M-E-T-A-L. Red-white for legendary enchantment. When it enters the battlefield, it deals one damage to each creature that doesn't have First Strike, Double Strike, Vigilance, or Haste. Whenever you attack with at least two creatures that have First Strike, Double Strike, Vigilance, and or Haste, transform Path of Metal. Firstly, this is really neat. Very rarely do we have cards that play with keywords in this way, except the ones that list every keyword they can because they gain them or share them. The aforementioned Audric Lunark Marshall, Majestic Miriarch from Hour of Devastation. The rear side is Metzali, Tower of Triumph. Get it? Metal, Metzali, ha. Huh? Tap add one mana of any color to your mana pool. One in a red, tap. It deals two damage to each opponent. And two in a white, tap. Choose a creature at random that attacked this turn. Destroy that creature. It's not quite as splashy as some of the other ones, but it's still a unique red-white card, and I'll take it. We don't often enough get rare red-white cards that do cool things, so it's some kind of victory. Some kind of triumph, if you will. And finally, Hadana's Climb. One red-blue for a legendary enchantment. At the beginning of combat on your turn, put a plus one plus one counter on target creature you control. Then if that creature has three or more plus one plus one counters on it, transform Hadana's Climb. Spiritually, this is very similar to the Ordeal Cycle from Theros. They were uncommons, they were monocolored. You enchanted a creature, when they attacked, they got a plus one plus one counter, and when they had three or more plus one plus one counters on them, you got to sacrifice the enchantment for some benefit. Now this one instead transforms into the Winged Temple of Araska. Tap, add one mana of any color to your mana pool. One green-blue tap. Target creature you control gains flying and gets plus X plus X until end of turn where X is its power. And the most important thing about this card, art by Titus Lunter. I'm so glad that Titus had a card in my favorite color combination. It's delightful. There are two other transform cards in this set. 
One of them is Golem Guardian. 4 mana for a 4-4 artifact creature Golem with Defender. It has an activated ability of 2. It fights another target creature you control. When Golem Guardian dies this turn, return it to the battlefield, transformed, under your control. This is a fun way to say, you need to sacrifice this kind of, but you can't do it unless you can trade or kill it. The backside is Gold Forge Garrison. Tap, add 2 mana of any 1 color to your mana pool. That's neat. And 4 tap, create a 4-4 Colorless Golem Artifact Creature Token. This reminds me that I really should build that Golem Tribal deck. New Phyrexia had a couple, I want to say 7, cards with Splicer in the name that created golems and also granted golems buffs or keywords. This would be another cool addition to that deck. And finally, we have the difficult to transform, but kind of bonkers, Azor's Gateway. 2 mana for a legendary artifact. 1 tap, draw a card, then exile a card from your hand. If cards with 5 or more different converted mana costs are exiled with Azor's Gateway, you gain 5 life, untap Azor's Gateway, and transform it. The rear side is Sanctum of the Sun. Tap, add X mana of any one color to your mana pool where X is your life total. You hear that? Your life total. That's ridiculous. This land is probably capable of producing more mana than any land that's come before it. And I'm not speaking in hyperbole. Even Cabal Coffers would take forever to get that many swamps out. I now need to think how many decks I have that involve artifacts and like untapping artifacts because I would absolutely play this in those decks if I could transform it in fewer than five turns. It has a pretty good chance of getting removed before you transform it. It's just too good to let live, and you can naturalize an artifact, you can't naturalize a land. But the possibilities, think of the possibilities! We have now reached the part of the podcast where I talk about really whatever card I want to because I no longer have an order to follow. That means we next go to Awakened Amalgam. Four mana for an artifact creature, Golem. It has power and toughness equal to the number of differently named lands you control. Isn't that fun? That's so weird. We almost never can see a card that refers to differently named things. It's not mechanically relevant. This is another one of those cards that happens to be perfect for some of my commander decks. I have a Lands Matter commander deck headed by Kineo Sentira of Miletus, and it has a ton of different non-basic lands and tries to ramp them all out. This card would be huge in that deck. This set has a really neat, cheap clone effect. Protean Raider. One blue-red for a creature shapeshifter pirate. It's a 2-2 raid. If you attacked with a creature this turn, you may have Protean Raider enter the battlefield as a copy of any creature on the battlefield. And the pirate is transforming into a raptor in the art. That just means they look like a human with a raptor head. It's hilarious. This card is also funny because we next to never see a clone that does anything if it enters as not a copy of something. If you didn't attack this turn, this can be a 2-2 pirate for 3 mana. Next, a card with a high possibility of impacting modern, Merfolk Mistbinder. Green-blue for a creature Merfolk Shaman. It's a 2-2, and other Merfolk you control get plus 1, plus 1. For those not familiar with modern or competitive formats in general, this might not sound that remarkable. The context here is that Fish, or a Merfolk tribal deck, is reasonably good in certain variants in both Modern and Legacy. Currently, it exists as a mono-blue aggro deck, because there are two cards, Lord of Atlantis and Master of the Pearl Trident, that are blue-blue for 2-2 Merfolk that grant plus one plus one to your other Merfolk, and they also give Island Walk. 
That means that they can't be blocked if defending player controls an island. Merfolk Mistbinder opens up the possibility of a blue-green Merfolk deck in Modern Legacy that plays 12 copies of Lords. It would be even more aggressive. I don't know enough about Fish, the archetype, not like the creature, to say whether it makes sense to go into blue-green to get four more Lords. My guess is yes, but grain of salt, I don't play Modern. That being said, I'm still looking forward to seeing if this has an impact. And shout out to whatever person on Reddit deemed the deck Tropical Fish. That's adorable. Pirates got an excellent lord as well, more so for Commander. Direfleet Neckbreaker. Two black red for a creature orc pirate. She's a 3-2 and says attacking pirates you control get plus 2 plus 0. Notably, that also applies to her. Pretty aggressive, I like it. I think that gets us through all of the multicolored cards and artifacts that I wanted to talk about, so let's head back to white and work our way down. One small very weird thing in this set. There are reprints of cards from original Ixalan. I don't see this as a problem. It's definitely odd, but if it ain't broke, and you want it to show up in the same percentage in the set, then just reprint it. The most notable of these reprints is Legion Conquistador, which is the vampire that fetches any number of other cards named Legion Conquistador. By virtue of it being reprinted at common, it means that even in Rivals of Ixalan draft, you will have the same percentage of them, the same possibility of finding them. Something of a callback to Lorwyn block tribal effects, we have a cycle of Forerunners. Both the Forerunners and the Harbingers involve searching your library for a creature of a given type and putting it on top of your library. All the Forerunners have an extra ability that interacts with their tribe. Forerunner of the Legion is the Vampire one. It's a Vampire Knight for Tuna White. It's a 2-2. And whenever another Vampire enters the battlefield under your control, target creature gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. And I won't read out for all of these the search a library for a Vampire or Pirate or Dinosaur or Merfolk and put it on top of your library. You can assume that part's there. The Pirate one is Forerunner of the Coalition, Tuna Black for a 2-2. Its second ability makes each opponent lose one life whenever another Pirate enters the battlefield under your control. Forerunner of the Empire is the Dino one. It's three and a red for a 1-3. Whenever a Dino enters the battlefield under your control, you may have Forerunner of the Empire deal one damage to each creature. Wonderful Enrage Enabler. Enrage is the dinosaur mechanic where when they are dealt damage, they do something neat. And Forerunner of the Heralds is three and a green. For the Merfolk one, it's a Merfolk Scout. 3-2. Whenever another Merfolk enters the battlefield under your control, put a plus one plus one counter on this. A central mechanic to this set that I haven't yet talked about is Ascend. It's the only new mechanic. Ascend is a keyword on really any permanent or instant or sorcery. It says that if you control 10 or more permanents, you get the city's blessing for the rest of the game. If Ascend is on an instant or sorcery, then it's checking when you cast it. If it's on a permanent, it's constantly checking. City's blessing doesn't do anything on its own. It's a status. Once you have hit 10 permanents and you have an Ascend thing or cast an Ascend instant or sorcery, you will get city's blessing and always have it even if you lose all your permanents. Radiant Destiny involves Ascend and Tribal themes. Tuna White for an enchantment, Ascend. As it enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. Creatures you control of the chosen type get plus one plus one. As long as you have the city's blessing, they also have Vigilance. I'm always glad to see more all-tribal effects. It makes weird tribals more playable. Next, a unique board wipe, Slaughter the Strong. One white white for a sorcery. Each player chooses any number of creatures they control with total power, four or less, then sacrifices all other creatures they control. A nice point of contrast would be Retribution of the Meek. That is a sorcery for Tuna White 
that destroys all creatures with power 4 or greater and they can't be regenerated. Both useful in their own rights, this is a very cool design. Remember what Azor did when he entered the battlefield? Well, that also exists on a sorcery. Sphinx's Decree, one and a white. For a sorcery, each opponent can't cast instant or sorcery spells during that player's next turn. It's kind of like a bad silence. Silence will stop a player from casting spells on a given turn. This partially hamstrings them. I don't know if it's good, but it's certainly different, and I can appreciate different. This set has a lot of cards playing in slightly different mechanical space, and it's very rewarding. This one is Crafty Cut Purse. Three and a blue for a 2-2 human pirate. Flash. And, when it enters the battlefield, each token that would be created under an opponent's control this turn is created under your control instead. We have, I believe, never seen an effect like this. We've seen cool things in blue and in white sometimes that will steal something from people, but not tokens. Also, how on earth does a cut purse steal tokens? Oh, look, I got their wallet. And their wallet was full of sapperling flowers. By the way, the sapperling flowers are adorable. I think they're by Joseph Meehan. You did a fantastic job. I squee with delight whenever I see them. I like sapperlings a lot. I've tried making sapperling decks on maybe one or two occasions in Commander. I haven't gotten one to stick. But if I attempt again, as much as I love all of the sapperling token arts out there, I need to get a butt ton of the new one. Negate is reprinted in this set. Classic counterspell. One in a blue instant. Counter target non-creature spell. Once again, it's gotten a reprint with beautiful new art. This one's by Magali Villeneuve. Flavor text is wonderful, too. As one, nature lifts its voice to tell you this. No. Emphasis mine. Next, release to the wind. Two and a blue for an instant. Exile target non-land permanent. For as long as that card remains exiled, its owner may cast it without paying its mana cost. In a pinch, this can be a really bad flicker spell to delay an opponent from using a non-land permanent that they can't cast at instant speed. More so, it's a flicker for your things, and it lets you get a free cast trigger. Let's say you have an Eldrazi. For the most part, big Eldrazi don't trigger when they enter the battlefield, only when you cast them. This is three mana, do that. Another card that really made me think, Blood Sun. Two and a red for an enchantment. When it enters the battlefield, draw a card. All lands lose all abilities except mana abilities. The name and kind of the effect are a nod to Blood Moon, which makes non-basic lands mountains, but this effect is much more interesting and much more thought-provoking. Mana abilities, understandably, are abilities that produce mana, with one or two exceptions. For example, loyalty abilities aren't ever mana abilities. But when this removes abilities, it's not always a bad thing, because you'll recall that pretty much every land that enters the battlefield tapped does that because it has an ability that says it enters the battlefield tapped. So if you have this enchantment, all of your tap lands become way better. They all enter untapped. The main thing they shut down are fetch lands, which are lands that don't produce any mana themselves, but you can sacrifice them to search your library for a land. They're useless with this out. I very much want to use this, probably in my Enchantress deck, because if I sculpt the mana base around it, it could provide a lot of value. A card that's almost like a temporary Boundless Realms, Brass's Bounty. Six and a red for a sorcery. For each land you control, Create a colorless treasure artifact token with tap. Sacrifices artifact. Add one mana of any color to your mana pool. It doesn't have to be used in an artifact deck, but man will it have impact in artifact decks. Very simple combo. Reckless Fireweaver. It's one in a red for a 1-3, that when an artifact enters the battlefield under your control, you deal one damage to each opponent. I very much would like to deal damage to my opponents equal to the number of lands I control. Thank you very much. 
A nod back to Form of the Dragon, there's an enchantment called Form of the Dinosaur, which I think I laughed out loud when I first read that. Four red red for an enchantment. When it enters the battlefield, your life total becomes 15. At the beginning of your upkeep, Form of the Dinosaur deals 15 damage to a target creature an opponent controls, and that creature deals damage equal to its power to you. So you fight it, basically. Form of the Dragon was very similar in that it's trying to top-down get the flavor of you are a dragon. Not you control the dragon. No, no, no. You are this big old creature. A red common with another interesting effect is Mutiny. Red for a sorcery. Target creature an opponent controls deals damage equal to its power to another target creature that player controls. This seems like a very cool spot for red removal. Red tends to deal damage as its removal, so it's bad at dealing with big creatures. But this one punishes your opponent for having a big thing. And it's damage based, so it, it feels fairly nice in red's color pie. I don't know that you could print many versions of this card, but having it usable at common means that when we come up with a version of it, it could make a pretty cool impact on limited. Next up, Cacophodon, which is also fun to say. Three and a green for a 2-5 creature dinosaur. Enrage. Whenever Cacophodon is dealt damage, untap target permanent. I could see some cool combos with this, but mostly it's so cute. It's like a little rounded bird dino. I mean, they're all feathered, so a lot of them look like birds. But this one has a slightly more bird-shaped form, and it's just, it's just so cute. It's like, hey, hey. I can imagine it yapping adorably. Huge flavor win in Cherished Hatchling. One in a green for a 2-1 creature dinosaur. When it dies, you may cast dinosaur spells this turn as though they had flash. And whenever you cast a dinosaur spell this turn it gains, when this creature enters the battlefield, you may have it fight target creature. Flavor text, despite its appearance, it's anything but defenseless. My one critique of this card is that the creature has to die before the other dinos come crashing to try and save it, so it's kind of defenseless, but it will be revenged. Sometimes the lead designer of Magic, Mark Rosewater, talks about clone effects being secondary in green, and that's kind of true. Sometimes a green card can make a copy of itself. We have a dinosaur one here, Polyraptor. Six green green for a 5-5 five five creature dinosaur. Enrage. Whenever it's dealt damage, create a token that's a copy of it. That will get out of control really quickly. Two last cards here for you. The first one is Wayward Swordtooth. Two and a green for a creature dinosaur. It has a send. It's a 5-5. Five five. You may play an additional land on each of your turns, but it can't attack or block unless you have the city's blessing. Even without this being able to attack or block, I absolutely love it in a green creature toolbox. It's 3 mana, which is just where you want to be, very easily fetchable with Green Sun Zenith, Court of Calling, also fetchable by Woodland Bellower, which is a 6 mana creature that gets a 3 mana non-legendary green creature to your battlefield. You can get different forms of ramp off of a Woodland Bellower or in a creature package, but rarely, or in some cases never, can you get at 3 mana additional land per turn. And finally, with some lovely Raymond Swanland art, World Shaper. 3 and a green for a creature Merfolk Shaman. It's a 3-3. When it attacks, you may put the top 3 cards of your library into your graveyard. When World Shaper dies, put all land cards from your graveyard onto the battlefield tapped. This card bears similarities to Splendid Reclamation from Eldritch Moon, which is 3 and a green for a sorcery that puts all lands from your graveyard onto the battlefield tapped. There's also a much, much earlier effect from, I think, Urza Block called Planar Birth. It's two mana, and it returns all basic lands for all players to their battlefield. Not very good. I'm very excited to see another copy of this effect 
because the decks that want it get Rog Monster, Sidisi, the three colored one, or my four color Get Rog Monster Concealed Commander Dune Brood Nephilim deck all want more copies of this effect. You may have noticed me powering through things there at the end. That's because I think we're about done discussing Rivals of Ixalan, which might make this the first time we've ever discussed an expert expansion in a single episode. It's probably made easier by the fact that there's no conversation, which means that I can go through cards way faster. Admittedly, it's also a little bit more interesting with commentary and exchange, but at least we really moved through these. If you would care for my thoughts on any card I haven't talked about, or really any that I already did, feel free to find me on Twitter, at walking underscore atlas, or you can email us at info at opalnebula.com. Jacob can be found anywhere you find someone named Frogger, spelled P-H-R-A-W-G-E-R, that's Twitter, that's Tumblr, and if you're at MAGFest this weekend, you might be able to catch him there. Just look for the beard. For more Talking Atlas, find us on iTunes, Google Play, or our website, opalnebula.com. And if you have enjoyed what you've heard today, please consider finding us on Patreon at patreon.com slash opalnebula. Once more, a happy new year and happy conclusion of spoiler season to all of our fans, and until next time, happy planeswalking. <laughs>